Psalm 2 is God's word for us here this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, your word is good. And as we've sung repeatedly and thought already, you, God, are our king. You are our Lord. You are our ruler. Your ways are right. Your judgments are perfect. Your glory is our highest good. Let us this morning... Let the text of your word humble us and give us hope. That we plead with you in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever noticed, looking around the world, that something which is unbelievably lovely to some people is absolutely repulsive? To others. Have you recognized this? You might ask two people that you would think would have identical perspectives to describe for you a painting, a poem, an event, and you might get greatly, surprisingly different responses. Well, let's go thumbs up, thumbs down, yay or nay, pro or con. I'll just mention some foods. You say yes or no. Sushi. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Mushrooms. Yes. Olives. Yes. <laughs> Dog. Yes. <laughs> some of y'all are lying, by the way. Octopus. Yes. Oh. <laughs> uh, what is it? English? Uh, Blood sausage. <laughs> it doesn't take long to get a no out of most of us in some places, right? Chitlins. Some of you go, I don't know what that is. If you don't know, the answer is no, just so you know, okay? Okay, how many of you like C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia? Got a good feeling about that, right? We love the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There is beauty in the gospel message as C.S. Lewis gives us Aslan the Lion. But you know, people have different responses to that too. 
People have different responses to the message of Jesus in the story. I want to read to you a portion of a, of a, a column from a British columnist named Polly Toynbee. She wrote this in The Guardian just after that. Remember the Narnia, the first Narnia movie came out with Liam Neeson doing the voice of Aslan? So Aslan comes to rescue Peter and the children and says, I have a very particular set of skills. It's very, it was very different. Um, here's the title of her article. And she's talking not just about the movie, but about the Christian imagery. And you all like the Christian imagery in, in uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? She writes, quote, the title is, Narnia represents everything that is most hateful about religion. And here's what she says, quote, Of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? Poor child Edmund, to blame for everything, must bear the full weight of a guilt only Christians know how to inflict with a twisted knife to the heart. Children are supposed to fall in love with the hypnotic Aslan, though he's not a character. He's pure, raw, awesome power. He's an emblem for everything an atheist objects to in religion. His divine presence is a way to avoid humans taking responsibility for everything here and now on earth where no one is watching, no one is guiding, no one is judging, and there's no other place yet to come. Without an Aslan, there's no one here but ourselves to suffer for our sins, no one to redeem us but ourselves. We are obliged to settle our own disputes and do what we can. We need no holy guidebooks, only a very human moral compass. Everyone needs ghost spirits, marvels, and poetic imaginings, but we can do well without an Aslan. C.H. Spurgeon once said, To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? See, Spurgeon got it. Spurgeon knew that people will respond differently to the commands, to the dominion, the authority of God, based on whether or not they're in his family and willing to be submitted to him and under his grace and renewed by his spirit. And we see that division right here in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 in the immediate context brings to mind the promises of God made to King David, the king over Israel. It's very possible that Psalm 2 is supposed to be sung at the coronation of future kings of Israel, like David, heirs to the promises of God. But like many Old Testament promises, the passage here depicts something much larger than the land of Israel and much larger than the political rule of David. It makes reference in a grand, ultimate way to the eternal king of Israel, to the eternal son of David, who is Jesus Christ, our Savior. So today... We're going to take a moment to read through this psalm, and I'm going to give you, they're not exactly points, they're more four truths today. Four truths that we're going to see in this text. And you will want to respond to those truths differently based on whether or not you're in the family of God. We're going to look in small at how the promises is, are related to David and his family. But we'll look in large at how these promises describe you and me and our response to Jesus. 
So you ready? Truth number one. The human heart is full of vain rebellion against God. By the way, anyone want to argue against that after just looking at our world? The human heart is full of vain rebellion against God. Verses 1 through 3 write, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the opening here of this psalm, this song, is a rhetorical question. You guys know what a rhetorical question is, right? And you're doing a good job by not answering me. That's perfect. A rhetorical question is a question that you're not supposed to answer out loud. David asks, why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot against God and God's chosen king? You get a picture almost of a meeting of, of, of national leaders sitting around a conference table plotting with rage and noise how to overthrow God's chosen king. How do we get Jesus off the throne? Now, David's not asking, by the way, why might they want out from under the rule of God, though that's a very valid question. David instead is asking something else. He wants to know why they would dare try something so foolish. In the Israelite context, you could picture a tent with the leaders of the Moabites and the Philistines and the Edomites all gathering together saying, how can we throw off the rule of Israel? I mean, they had been subdued by Israel, but they had their national identity. Maybe they wanted to see Israel fall. Maybe they wanted to return to their own places of prominence. But in the larger context, this stanza, this first stanza of the poem, speaks to the human heart. Because people have, since the very first sin, plotted as to how to get themselves out from under the rule of God. Eve disobeyed God and took the fruit. Adam disobeyed God, refusing to fulfill his role as husband to warn her against what she was doing. And from that point forward, people have been rebelling against God and against God's chosen one. But there's a word I want you to especially notice in this section. Whether you're a follower of Jesus yet, or whether you're not, the word, and you could even... Underline it if you want to. It's vain. All of the plots to throw off the authority of God and to destroy God's anointed are vain plots. They will not work. They cannot succeed. No matter how crafty the plot seems, no matter how strong the kings appear to become, under no circumstances will the kings of the earth do anything that God doesn't allow them to do. Of course, the ultimate application of that verse involves the leaders of Jesus' day plotting against Jesus to put him to death. That looked like a plan that succeeded, didn't it? But all it did was serve the ultimate purpose of God. Listen to Acts 2, 24 to 28. Listen to the sovereignty of God over the plots of humans. Acts chapter 2, 24 to 28 reads, 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Did the nations plot against God? Herod, Pontius Pilate, all the rest, did they plot against God and God's anointed? You bet they did. In fact, they carried out their plan. But what do they do? They managed to accomplish what God had already predestined to happen. You see the same thing in chapter 4 of Acts, by the way. What they did was put Jesus to death, allowing Jesus to pay the price for the sins that God would forgive, the sins of his children. If you're here this morning and you're somebody who hasn't yet come to Jesus, or if you're hearing this online and you haven't yet come to Jesus, let me make this really simple call to you. Stop rebelling against God. You cannot cast off his authority over your life. You cannot defeat him in a battle. You cannot be free of his power. You cannot get away from his holiness. So put away thoughts of resisting God. When you fight against God, all you do is strive in vain to your own harm. So turn away from rebelling against God. Turn away from rebelling against God's standards. Stop rejecting the grace that's offered to you by Jesus, God's Son, and you'll find peace with God in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, take confidence that the rebellion against God that you see in the hearts of men is futile. Warn lost people that you know to stop their rebellion. Don't be intimidated by their insults, their supposedly clever arguments, their disdain. Don't even fear if they threaten your life. If you're a child of God in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that the lost can do to you that'll last in eternity. So have confidence, take courage, and take the gospel to a lost and dying world in need of the grace of the Lord Jesus and his shed blood and his newly risen life. Truth number two. Human rebellion does not threaten God's plan, but does draw his wrath. Truth two. Human rebellion does not threaten God's plan, but does draw his wrath. Verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here's the response of God to the schemes of these lost kings and wicked rulers Again, really, whether that's the kings of old plotting to take Jerusalem from the sons of David, or whether it's the people on our university campuses today mocking believers in the God of the Bible, God has the very same response. Notice, notice that God's response 
isn't exactly what some people expect it to be. The modern picture of God, and many churches paint this sadly, is so often a picture of a weepy weakling who just wishes everybody would like him. But that's never once been the picture of God in the Bible. Here we see God... What does verse 4 say to you about how God responds to them? What word do you see? The Lord laughs. By the way, that's not a humor-filled laugh. God scoffs at the foolishness of the rebellious kingdoms who would think they could overcome God and his chosen people. God laughs with scorn at the notion of some mere man, some creation of God's hand, thinking he could overthrow God. How do you think God ought to respond if you went outside, took a gun, and shot up the sky thinking you were going to kill him? Exactly, just like that. Why? Why should God laugh at that? Because it's dumb. God... God's not, though, just looking down and laughing at the foolishness of the council of rulers. God is taking action, he says. In wrath, God prepares to speak to these fools. And notice that God is angry. God does not, God cannot take rebellion against himself or his chosen one lightly. God is furious. His wrath is kindled David Pallison, in a book on anger, says, God is saying that this displeases him, it's wrong, and it matters. God scoffs. God holds people in derision. God has wrath. God displays fury. God's not mad because he's been threatened. God is angry because the holiness of God has been affronted, and the holiness of God is the highest good in all the universe. And be sure of this. According to the psalm, justice will be done. And God's name will be vindicated. God said he has set his king on Zion. In Jerusalem, God has set up a king. And that king is going to reign. See, God's response to the people plotting against him is to let them know that his kingdom will stand. And that's the end of the matter. God declares with God's own words that God's kingdom and God's chosen king will stand. Now, by the way, what happens when this God speaks? Things happen when this God speaks. The universe came into being from nothing at this God's words. The sun and the moon shine because of his call. The oceans stop at the shoreline because that's where he told them to stop. So when this God says, I've set up my king, his king is set up and he's not going to be removed. Now in the Old Testament context, what this means is that God's king is going to stand so long as God keeps his hand on him. When Israelite kings fell, it was because God allowed them to fall. That was keeping with God's covenant promises to David. God told David, I will discipline your wayward sons. 
But God also told David, I will not totally take my love away from your family the way I did from Saul. But in the New Testament context, God's scoffing, God's derision, God's wrath, God's fury are held out to those who rebel against his chosen king. And that's Jesus. For those who rebel against God's command to come to Jesus for grace, there's no gentleness left. Though many people around the world will mock Christ, declare that they will not follow Jesus, people will fight to destroy Christianity, God says to us, he has set up his king, King Jesus, and the matter is already settled. No amount of secular, satanic attack can take God's king off the throne of the universe. Jesus will reign. Jesus is reigning. Jesus shall reign. Jesus will never not reign. And so the nations around our globe had better get used to that idea. And much like the last truth, the call to the non-believer and to the believer remain. If you've never bowed to Jesus' authority as the king over your life, realize that your refusal does not change the fact that Jesus will be the king of your life. You can't win this fight. So stop fighting it. All you do by struggling against God is hurt yourself and draw his ire. But for the believer, this point brings a lot of hope. God's king is established. His kingdom will come. We take comfort and joy in the fact that Jesus the king reigns. And that point is forever settled. Truth number three. Christ will reign with power over all the nations. Truth three. Christ will reign with power over all the nations. 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The speaker of the song just shifted. And the anointed one is speaking for us here. And he draws to our minds when God first made the covenant that God made with the house of David. That's in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 16. 2 Samuel 11, 7 to 16. 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 16. I just did that backwards. Sorry about that. 7, 11 to 16. God says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is God speaking of David and his son Solomon now. Then he says, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Again, speaking of Solomon and those to follow him, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him 
as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Then God says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. See, God called David's children his own sons. He kind of adopted them, in a sense. He promised that he would discipline them when they strayed from God's commandments, but he would never remove his love from David's family the way that God had turned away from King Saul. And throughout all the rest of the Old Testament, some of David's sons were followers of God. They were blessed by God. Others of David's sons were rebellious, and God chastised them for it. But God never let the promise die. God never turned away from the promise. God never let any nation completely destroy the family of David, though some certainly tried. You realize, don't you, that we have entire books of the Old Testament devoted to people trying to wipe out David's family and not making it? That's what the book of Esther is about. The whole book is about God protecting the chosen family. Well, the calling of the rulers in David's house, God's sons. God says, I'm going to make them my sons. You are my son. I've begotten you today. When God used that language of David and his family, God set up for the world the proper vocabulary for what God was about to do that's even bigger than what that first thing sounds like. God was actually planning to send God's actual true son, Jesus, into the world to fulfill his promise. Though David and David's children were prone to rebellion against God, some more than others, Jesus, God's true son, perfectly kept all of the law of God. Jesus is ultimately perfectly blessed because he's the perfect God over the universe who took on humanity and did what we humans could never do. Jesus is going to reign, he is reigning, and is going to reign on David's throne forever and will fulfill everything God ever promised. Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 34 read, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. See, Jesus is going to have everything God promised that David's descendants ought to have. But look one more time at what this entails in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 2. Look at it again. God says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God promises the son of David dominion over all the nations. Jesus is going to crush rebellion with a rod of iron. He will reign over all peoples, not just Israel, and he will reign with power and authority to enforce the will of God. This is no weakling. This is no wimp. This is no weepy little Jesus just wishing we'd all be nice to each other. This is Jesus, God, reigning as God promises his king will. 
The New Testament picture comes out this way in Revelation 19, 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. Crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's true, folks. Jesus will return to this earth one day. And Jesus will set up the kingdom of God forever. He will rule and those who oppose him will not survive. So if you're here this morning and you have not surrendered to his lordship, It's time to stop fighting and receive him as your king. Doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter where you're from, because Jesus is going to rule all nations. So turn to Jesus before he returns to reign. Turn to him before he returns to reign. And believers... To you, the call is pretty simple here. Take the gospel. Take the message. Take the command to surrender to Jesus, to the nations, across the seas and across the streets. Those around you without Jesus are in desperate danger of suffering the wrath of God. You and I have to take them the message of his kingdom. We have to bring to them the glorious news that they don't have to be judged by the king. They can become his royal subjects and be forgiven. Christians, take heart in the truth that Jesus is going to reign. And he has the authority and the power, the power to back up the command that you deliver to others that say, come to Jesus before it's too late. Join the king in taking the gospel to the peoples of all nations. And that will be how you faithfully serve King Jesus. Fourth truth, last one. Sheltering in and joyfully following Christ leads to blessing, while rejecting him leads to destruction. Sheltering in and joyfully following Christ leads to blessing, while rejecting him leads to destruction. 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
The close of the psalm is a word of advice to those who in verses 1 through 3 were plotting to overthrow God and God's anointed king. They're first called to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. It's a call to do what's right by giving the right service to God and the king that God has placed on Zion. Serve him, call to obey. Fear him and tremble. The call to rightly be afraid of the consequences of disobeying this God because those consequences are terrible and they are sure. Verse 12, the hearer of the psalm is called to seek the favor of the king. Kiss the son. Bowing down, kissing the hem of the robe, if you will. Showing obeisance. Be kind, be rightly humble before the king that God has set on his throne so that you can avoid the anger of that king. Because the anger of God's chosen king leads to death for those who incur it. But those who would oppose God, you got two choices. You want to oppose God, you can either kindle his wrath against you Or take refuge in him. You can either get under the protection of this king. Or you can be destroyed by this king. There is no middle ground. Again the new covenant application for us is pretty clear. Don't you think? All people everywhere are to rid themselves of rebellious hearts. Jesus Christ is the chosen king from God. And everyone who opposes Jesus has to hear both God's advice and God's warning. Serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. It's a call to stop rebelling against God's chosen one, but instead fall in line with him. Notice something very important here in verse 11. There's a parallelism here. And it shows you that our call to serve God is a call to joy. Parallel statement, right? Fear and trembling are clear parallels. They're the same thing. One could be interchanged with the other. Do this with fear. Do this with trembling. Do this with trembling. It's all the same concept. God is demanding proper respect and awe from those who would serve him. But on the other side of the verse, serve is paralleled with rejoice. To serve God is to rejoice, to find joy in God. You can't serve God without joy. Because God repeatedly commands it. That doesn't mean you're always giddy while you obey God. But you obey because your heart desires joy. You obey out of a heart set on joy. God and God's glory become joy to you. Or if not, you fail to obey like you're commanded. One more parallelism happens here. A chiasm in verse 12 worth seeing. The first line and the last line of verse 12 refer to the right thing to do. Worship, take refuge in Jesus. The middle two lines are the consequences of not doing what's right. His wrath will be kindled and you will perish. To rebel against Jesus leads to God's wrath. To fight against Jesus leads to your ultimate destruction. But to bow and kiss the Son to worship Jesus, that leads to life. To worship Jesus is also to take refuge in Jesus, to find shelter in Jesus. If you run to Jesus for shelter, if you run to Jesus for refuge, if you run to Jesus saying, Jesus, hide me in you, then you'll be blessed of God. So to you this morning who hear this, who don't know God, 
I offer hope. You are in great danger, and I do not minimize that in any way. I can't take away your danger if you fight against God. But I can tell you, as God said in verse 12, everyone who takes refuge in the anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ, that's what the word means, everyone who takes refuge in Jesus will be blessed. You're in danger, but you can escape it by running to the Son of God. (laughs) This is not going to political leader of Israel today. It's running to Jesus, the true Son of God who is going to return, who is going to reign over all the nations. And your hope is most simply put by the word of God in John chapter 3 at the end of the chapter, 35 and 36, where John the Baptist actually says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Believe in Jesus. Receive the grace that he purchased for you on the cross. Yield your life to his lordship. He is your king. You do that, you're going to have life. You're going to escape the wrath of God. And finally, believers, obey him with joy. Obey him, in fact, because you want joy. Obey him because you think, I would rather have joy than misery. Obey him for the sake of wanting joy. Because that magnifies him as glorious. Yeah, the king I've just described is scary. God actually intends this to be scary. But he's also gentle and loving and merciful. If you place your trust in Jesus, you are his royal subject. And you will have his blessing. So then the call for you is to live by doing the one thing that God has ever designed to give your heart ultimate joy Obey your God. Love him. Serve him. Have joy in him forever. Yeah, much like any book or any movie or any food that we critique by more than one person. Some folks will love this message and some folks will hate it. I know that. If you hate this message because of the way I speak or the way I look, I hope you'll ignore that. Look to the Word of God. But if you hate this because you hate the concept of God reigning over you, stop plotting in vain like the people of verses 1 through 3. God reigns. God's kingdom is established. It will include all nations. And there's not a single thing you can do to stop it. Kiss the Son. Bow to Jesus. Receive His loving grace before it's too late. Get under his authority. Believe in his death and burial and resurrection and yield your entire life. Give up your entire life to him. Say, Jesus, you own me. And receive from him a new heart that'll follow him with joy. And you'll be blessed in a way that for eternity, no one is ever going to be able to take that blessing away. Let's bow together. Lord, there's nothing easy or uber gentle about that song. But there's something glorious about the fact, God, that you are a king 
and not some weak supplicant just trying to get us to like you. I am grateful, God, that you're not a middle schooler trying to win friends by impressing others. But instead, you're God, King, Lord, and glorious in every way. Thank you for Jesus who shed his blood to pay the price for our sins. Help us find our refuge in him. Not only seeing him as king, but remembering the cross where he suffered and died to bring us to himself. Please, Lord, have mercy on us. Please, Lord, bring people to surrender and faith. Please, Lord, help us find joy in Christ. For it's in his holy name we pray. Amen.